The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. Artist studios, exhibition space, and more. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. A few years ago, all the way back in what feels now like the toddler years of Art Curious, I decided to produce a season of the show all around the concept of rivals. Rivals! What's juicier than a story about two people pitted against each other? A story full of swirling drama, of revenge, bitterness, and wrongs done. It's what so many of the best novels, movies, and TV shows are made of. And I mean, books and movies and TV shows have all actually just been titled Rivals. It's a good theme. And it still is one of my favorite seasons of the show to this day, because it's one that features these big, recognizable names that are at each other's metaphorical throats. Picasso versus Matisse, Turner versus Constable, Pollock versus de Kooning, and in one of my favorite thought-provoking pairings, Elaine de Kooning and Lee Krasner versus their respective husbands. It's fun, right? And it was a fun way, too, to get to know some of these artists and what made them tick. But as much as I personally enjoyed working on the season, I can also admit that, at times, it was uncomfortable for me to sit there amidst all this backbiting and debating, even for the sake of sharing what ended up being really great stories about really interesting artists and their works of art. It was worth it, don't get me wrong, and I know that many of you enjoyed it, because over the years you've told me so. But in those in-person comments, IG messages, and emails, you have frequently followed up your statements with a question. Have you ever considered doing a season about artist relationships? Well, friends, I heard you. A bunch of self-admitting, hopeless romantics who wanted to hear more about the people bound less by competition and distaste and more by attraction, fascination, by love. Though there are examples of romantic and sexual relationships between creators that are sprinkled throughout art history as we know it, it's true that we have the most information about relationships from folks who lived in the last century. Just because we have greater access to documentation recording the lives of these people. And because, as the 20th century progressed, people, and artists perhaps especially, became more vocal about their relationships, less inhibited. Modern artists lived their art and their relationships out loud, writing about them, talking about them, and sometimes even creating works of art about them. So this season, I am rounding up the stories of modern artists in love, in lust, in relationships. But don't worry, there will still be plenty of drama to share as we dig into these individuals, see how their liaisons, marriages, affairs, and connections played in or on their respective relationships and works of art, and how, if anything, they affected art history. I, for one, believe that it is time for modern love. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. Art Curious Season 13 is all about modern love. And we are starting today with the pairing of surrealist painters Max Ernst and Dorothea Tanning. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, 
and the strangely wonderful in art history. I am Jennifer Dassel. The road to Dorothea Tanning and Max Ernst's relationship was a long one, and a little bumpy at that, given that Tanning would eventually become Ernst's fourth wife. Or maybe it wasn't bumpy at all, but just full of those little twists and turns in the road that brings one eventually to their fates. But I'm getting ahead of our story just a little bit. Let's first meet Max Ernst, who came upon the scene, i.e. Earth, earlier than his wife-to-be. Max Ernst was born on April 2, 1891, in the town of Brühl, Germany, which is about 20 kilometers south of Cologne. Max Ernst's story follows a similar path as many artists, one in which the artist's father brings the world of art to the attention of his child. In Ernst's case, that is definitely true, except that his father wasn't a professional artist. He was a teacher, though, working at a school for the deaf, but he enjoyed painting as an amateur in his off hours. So it was through him that Max Ernst learned to enjoy art, as well as learning some basics of techniques. But his relationship with his father also affected him in another way that could have long consequences. His dad, who was a strict disciplinarian, would inspire him too to reject authority and many of those quote-unquote traditional modes of thinking, working, and living. Subsequently, he opted not to pursue any artistic training, and when he enrolled at the University of Bonn in 1909 at the age of 18, he seemed almost resolute in his determination to study anything but art, taking classes in philosophy, psychology, and literature, with a little art history thrown in for good measure. But he did start taking art making seriously as a career after he met fellow artist August Maka in 1911, a painter who would become one of the leading artists of the famed Der Blau-Reiter movement, the Blue Rider, an association of artists who explored concepts of spirituality and art through a focus on abstraction and bright color, a group named after motifs most frequently found in member Vasily Kandinsky's paintings. Not long after, encounters with the works of people like Pablo Picasso, Vincent van Gogh, and Paul Gauguin at an exhibition in Cologne also shook the artist to his core. This double whammy of exposure to both post-impressionism and cubism, along with his connection to the German expressionists who were all circling in and around the Blue Riders, really sealed the deal. Art was the way forward for Max Ernst. But... He would only do it if he could do it on his own terms. During the same time period, another immensely creative mind was born. Dorothea Tanning was an Illinois girl born in the town of Galesburg on August 25, 1910. Like Ernst, she developed an interest in art at an early age. By the time she was a teenager, her family knew that she had a gift. But rather than being a strict disciplinarian, her father, Andrew, seemed rather supportive. In one of her two memoirs, a book titled Between Lives, 
Tanning recalls a formative moment that showcases both her direction forward and her family's support. Her dad was friends with the poet Carl Sandburg, and one day he shared her drawings with him. Bursting with pride, Andrew Tanning stated, quote, We will send her to art school when the time comes. To which Carl Sandburg declared, quote, Oh no, don't do that. Not art school. They will stifle her talent and originality. And the Tanning family, with Dorothea in particular, heeded this advice. After a two-year stint at Knox College, a private liberal arts institution in her hometown, she moved to Chicago to attend art school at the Chicago Academy of Art. But you can still almost hear Sandberg's advice ringing there in her ears. She left after about three weeks, later decrying the commercialism of the school. She knew then that she, like her future husband, would create art on her own terms. And there was only one place to go to make that dream happen. New York. And it was to the Big Apple that she moved in 1935 to become a commercial artist and an art director while she worked to establish herself as a fine artist. Coming up next, we head back over to Europe to get a taste of Max Ernst's life over the ensuing decades. We will learn about that and much more right after these quick messages. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Our Curious. During Dorothea Tanning's childhood and teen years, Max Ernst, on the other side of the Atlantic, underwent some of the most formative times of his life. Some good years, some bad years. In 1914, with the onset of World War I, he was drafted and served in the German army for nearly all of the bloody four-year war, an experience understandably so traumatizing that in his autobiography, he imagined himself as dead during that time. He wrote, quote, On the 1st of August 1914, Max Ernst died. He was resurrected on the 11th of November 1918. His pal August Maka, by the way, was killed just two months into the war in September of 1914. In the first episode of Season 2 of Art Curious, I shared what I called a little season prologue, all about the connections throughout history between art and war. In that episode, I talked briefly about the after-effects of World War I on the art world. And for me, one of the most interesting developments is that the war essentially begat Dada, the anti-art movement that embraced all things nonsensical in art, dance, literature, music, and more. Dada was this radical group of folks who created experimental, performative, and often irreverent works couched in things like chance and spontaneity. Because why follow the rules of creativity when life obviously doesn't have any rules? If a brutal war could utterly destroy the world as it was then known, then shouldn't art be destroyed and remade too? Returning to Cologne after the 1918 armistice, Ernst sought solace in his art, connecting with the city's avant-garde community and creating his very first experimental pieces in collage. In 1919, he, alongside artist and social activist Johann Theodor Bargeld, founded the Cologne Dada Group. At the same time, he sought further solace and grounding in a romantic relationship. In 1918, he married his first wife, 
an art critic and, yay, art historian named Louise Strauss, who is a fascinating woman in her own right and whose life was sadly cut short when she was killed in Auschwitz in 1944. In 1921, Louise and Max's child Ulrich, known as Jimmy, was born. But trouble in paradise and all that, y'all. Though we might be able to put a little of the inspiration, or blame depending on your point of view, on the surrealist figurehead French poet André Breton. In 1922, Breton published an article with his advice on how to carry on in a still-scarred post-war world. Drop everything he told his readers. Leave your work, your routine, your family, and just go. Coincidentally, Ernst had become friends with Breton the year prior after Breton brought Ernst to Paris in 1921 to first exhibit his works. And it was there in Paris that Ernst met the French poet Paul Éluard and his wife, the striking, enigmatic Russian Elena Ivanova Diakonova, a woman whom Eloard had dubbed Gala. If you listened to our episode on Gala, who would eventually go on to become the wife, muse, mother, demon, all of the above, of surrealist Salvador Dali, then you already know what comes next. Max Ernst heeded Breton's words to drop everything and he left his family in 1922 to move in with Eloard and Gala, joining them in a very famous menage a trois that lasted for three years, during which time Ernst moved deeper and deeper into the burgeoning surrealist movement, harnessing an interest in the unconscious mind to fuel his collages and his paintings. Take one of Ernst's most fascinating and famous works, Two Children Are Threatened by a Nightingale from 1924 and now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York as just one example. This piece, a mixed media work involving both painting and collage elements, as well as physical items like a doorknob, a little gate, and a toy house, was reportedly inspired by what Ernst called a fever vision from his childhood. For more than 20 years now, I have been captivated and disturbed by this work of art. In it, we see a man, all faceless and gray, standing atop the dollhouse roof, a young child bundled in his arms. Two girls, equally gray and ghostly, are on the ground. One is lying in a faint, and the other is brandishing a knife against the threat from that title, a nightingale, who, by the way, is barely bigger than a speck against the blue sky. Combined, all of the 2D and 3D elements perfectly reflect the confoundment that is so key to surrealism, something that curators at MoMA called, quote, making the credible believable, expressing disjunctions of the mind and shocks of societal upheavals with unsettling clarity. Speaking of MoMA, this is actually where Dorothea Tanning found herself a decade later, when the huge exhibition Fantastic Art Dada Surrealism hit MoMA in late 1936. And I mean it when I call this exhibition huge, because I mean big. It contained more than 700 objects from both Europe and the United States over a range of almost 500 years, and it included such disparate figures as Hieronymus Bosch, Leonardo da Vinci, and Giuseppe Arcimboldo all the way up to the most contemporary works created that very year by the likes of Dora Maar, Leonor Fini, Yves Tanguy, Alexander Calder, 
and Walt Disney. I am linking the master checklist in my blog for today's episode because it is just seriously amazing, and I've only mentioned a tiny percentage of the named artists therein. If you can't already tell, I am astounded by the scope of this exhibition. And Dorothea Tanning? This show shook her. It seemed to fit with everything that she was drawn to, everything that she wanted to express. Of surrealism in particular, she later wrote, quote, Here is the infinitely faceted world I must have been waiting for. Here is the limitless expanse of possibility, a perspective having only incidentally to do with painting on surfaces. Some claim that this was Tanning's first introduction to surrealism, while other sources I reviewed noted that she was already working in her own surrealist mode by this point, so there does seem to be some disagreement here. But what we do know is that it was at the MoMA show that she was first introduced to artists like Salvador Dali, Man Ray, Marcel Duchamp, and an artist who was profiled in the exhibition with over 40 works of art to his name and several more collaborative pieces therein. It was none other than Max Ernst. It would still be several years more before Tanning and Ernst would actually cross paths. Tanning traveled to Paris during the summer of 1939 with letters of introduction to several big-name artists, like Pablo Picasso and Yves Tanguy, and she carried a letter of introduction with hopes of meeting Ernst, too. But, alas, they did not meet. And not too long after, in September of that same year, Ernst was sent to an internment camp near Aix-en-Provence in the south of France as someone who was a quote-unquote undesirable foreigner, since, you know, he was German. And this was at the outset of World War II, so the French suspected him, among many others, of being Nazi spies. This was one of four camps that would eventually hold Ernst in captivity before he escaped to the U.S. with the help of famed art collector Peggy Guggenheim in 1941. Guggenheim owned a number of his works, by the way, and then Guggenheim and Ernst got married that year, with her becoming his third wife after a second union with painter Marie-Berthe Orange and, also famously, an affair with fellow surrealist Leonora Carrington. Peggy Guggenheim actually played a role in bringing Max Ernst and Dorothea Tanning together, though she naturally wouldn't have known it at the time. In 1942, Guggenheim opened The Art of This Century, a gallery on West 57th Street in New York City, which focused on, well, art of that century, i.e. contemporary art. One of her earliest planned shows was Exhibition by 31 Women, an all-female show that was seen as rather forward-thinking at the time, and one that focused heavily on Dada and surrealist art. In order to help his then-wife source artists for the exhibition, Max Ernst made a visit to Dorothea Tanning's apartment to look at her pieces. And there, unfinished and standing on a nearby easel, he saw a self-portrait by Tanning. It is a gorgeous, gripping piece. Tanning features herself barefoot and with her breasts revealed, her shoulders covered by an incredible purple and green jacket, which seemingly is a throwback to centuries prior. She holds up a brown and gray skirt across her toned waist, with a skirt seeming to sprout tendrils and vines across the back. Her face is expressionless and unreadable, 
even though a fantastic creature stands at her feet. A creature that art historian Whitney Chadwick has referred to as a winged lemur, which I can't help but love. To Tanning's right is a stream of seemingly never-ending doors, one opening onto another, onto another, and so forth. Precisely rendered and very lifelike in detail, Tanning's method is at odds with the dreamlike quality of her work. It's a contrast that makes it all that much more fascinating. That weird, unknowable quality is what makes Dorothea Tanning's paintings so enticing. And Tanning knew this knew that she could draw in visitors with her works like this one, noting once that mystery in art was, quote, a very healthy thing because it encourages the viewer to look beyond the obvious and commonplace. Max Ernst saw this work in Tanning's apartment, and the story goes that he then suggested a title to her. It should be called Birthday to symbolize the passage from the real world into the surreal one. So. That she did. She titled this piece Birthday. And afterward, together the artist played chess, a game that inspired another round of play the following day. And then Max Ernst moved in with her one week later. The couple lived in New York for almost five years, both working diligently and exhibiting their art until about 1946, when they opted to make two drastic life changes. First, they opted to move west eventually decamping to Sedona, Arizona. But before that, they tied the knot, marrying in a double ceremony in Beverly Hills with fellow Dada artist Man Ray and his lady love, Juliet Browner. Tanning was Ernst's fourth wife, but this marriage was the one that stuck. They would be married for almost 30 years. At the start of the episode today, I mentioned that I was curious about how their marriage affected the artist's work of art, if at all. The wonderful thing is that it might not have had a lot of effect on either of them. Not that they didn't initially attempt to involve themselves in each other's creative endeavors, though. As Tanning later wrote, early on in their relationship, she would suggest a change, like changing the color of a particular object from yellow to green, for example and that Ernst didn't follow through with her probably unsolicited advice. She would also request Ernst's opinion of a work of hers in progress and sometimes would offer constructive criticism to him, but eventually she realized this was a terrible idea. She wrote, quote, A criticism, even solicited, would have been odious to him as later to me. You have your own eye, your own heart, your own soul. What need of the teacher's foot in the bounteous garden of all that plenty? Max Ernst's heritage eventually caught up with the couple in Arizona. Though he became a naturalized American citizen in 1948, the passage of the McCarran Act in 1950 restricted the movements of those potentially connected to communism. And with Germany, Ernst's birth country, previously linked to totalitarianism under Hitler, Ernst himself was once again beginning to look suspicious in the eyes of a foreign government, just as he had in the late 1930s in France. So though he and Tanning tried to fight for his rights in the U.S., they eventually opted instead to return to Europe, settling in France in the 1950s. By the way, in the mid-1960s, the U.S. government attempted to make good for all of those who had been affected by the McCarran Act, 
offering American citizenship with full rights to live anywhere and with no restriction. An offer which Max Ernst declined. Europe ended actually being pretty great for Dorothea Tanning in particular. One year after they settled in Paris, she enjoyed her first solo exhibition at the Gallery Furstenberg, a show that was a pivotal one for Tanning, presenting her as a celebrated and successful creator in her own right, an artist totally separate from her husband. This seems a little trite to us now, like, of course she's separate from her husband. But remember that this was the 1950s, and gender politics were not what they would eventually become even a decade later. Think, too, of artists like Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning, both of whom we have profiled here on Art Curious, who struggled to climb out from behind their own artist husband's shadows. Tanning, though, for her, it worked. She later declared, quote, For me, an artist living in the shadow of a great man, it was somehow crucial. The shadow lifted, and a gentle but steady light then shone upon me. In these decades in particular, the 1950s through the 1970s, Tanning's work changed massively as she focused more of her time on sculpture, creating these fantastical figures out of textiles, a period which she would later refer to as, quote, an intense five-year adventure in soft sculpture. She also actively experimented with printmaking and artist books. And when she was painting, her works moved away from the precision of her early surrealist works and more toward the abstract, though she never lost a focus on the figure, especially the female form. By no means was Max Ernst lounging about during this time. The same year that Dorothea Tanning experienced European success with her Gallery Furstenberg exhibition, Max Ernst won the grand prize at the Venice Biennale, one of the most acclaimed international exhibitions of contemporary art, and one that remains so even today. Naturally, he continued to paint, and he continued to write as well, having established himself as a critical artistic voice when he published his book, Beyond Painting, in the late 1940s. But it's beautiful to think that, at least in some way, Ernst stepped aside a bit in terms of his artistic career to let Tanning jump into the limelight that she rightly deserved as well. Ernst, who, remember, was nearly two decades her elder, had achieved massive success during his peak years, and he supported his partner when it was time for her to enjoy her own peak years, too. Max Ernst and Dorothea Tanning spent 34 years together and were married for almost 30 of those years. Ernst died on April 1, 1975, just shy of his 85th birthday. Of the terrible grief that followed, Tanning said, quote, He is the lake with an echo. I say Max. Everyone says Max. The lake says Max. The echo says Max. Far away. And Max is everywhere and part of my throat and the moat in the air, I hold my screaming ears that no one but me can hear. Tanning moved back to the U.S. in 1980, and though she continued to produce artworks, the last few decades of her life focused more on writing. Lots of writing. Producing volumes of poetry, 
a novel, and two memoirs. Memoirs not only about herself, but about her late husband, with her intention being to bring Ernst, quote, into focus, to brush aside for a little the enigma that he has presented to most people. In short, to make him available and alive as I knew him to be. Dorothea Tanning outlived her husband by several decades, passing away at the age of 101 on January 31, 2011. With that, the remaining half of one of modern art's power couples was finally gone. But their vast influence upon the art world, both separate and together, will never be extinguished. Max Ernst, who was what the New York Times would call a, quote, catalytic figure in 20th century art, and Dorothea Tanning, who broke the mold for what surrealist painting and sculpture could be, paving the way for generations of women to follow. When asked by a journalist for Salon in 2002 to describe the impact of decades of her work, Tanning replied, quote, I'd be satisfied with having suggested that there is more than meets the eye. Next time on Art Curious, we are heading across the Atlantic to meet two German-born artists, but we will spend a lot of our time with them in the mountains of North Carolina. I love this episode, and you are not going to want to miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks to Holly Sauer for her excellent research for this episode. The Art Curious theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. And our podcast is co-produced by Kabunki. Podcasts, creative video, and more. Subscribe to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at subgenrepodcast.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. The Art Curious podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. With them and also with Patreon, you can donate to us tax-free to show your support. And with Patreon, you can go ad-free. Find all of our donation links and more at our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. Check back with us soon as we explore some of the most unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful modern art lovers in art history. Thank you.